name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and to my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today is the feast of Saint Anne, the mother of Mary. She is the patroness of the province of Quebec. And no doubt today at Saint Anne de Beaupré, there will be hopefully large crowds gathered in her honor. The name Anne in Hebrew is Hannah. It means grace. She was certainly she was certainly someone who had received grace. Now all our information concerning both the names of Anne and Joachim, her husband, and their lives, the parents of Mary, is derived from apocryphal literature. We have the Gospel of the Nativity of Mary, we have the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, and the famous Proto-Evangelium of James. They were never recognized as canonical Gospels, but they had great authority, especially in the East. They were sometimes used during the feast days of Mary, and uh, it was used in particular by the Greeks, by the Syrians, the Copts, and a few others. And uh, eventually, the contents of those Gospels were incorporated by a monk by the name of Jacobus de Voragine in his famous uh, Golden Legend. And he wrote in this Golden Legend a, a book that became very popular and, and widely read in the Middle Ages. I think it was written sometime in the 13th century. And also it was the source of many of the depictions in the West of the iconography of St. Anne. And it, it's really what um, skyrocketed her uh, importance and in, in the devotion towards St. Anne. You, you, can, you can know that she is the mother of, of Mary, but unless there are stories or accounts related to her, it's hard that devotion really develop as much as it did. And so the Golden Legend by Jacobus de Voragine uh, was used as the inspiration for many paintings. Uh, you know, one of the stories, for example, is the account of Anne and Joachim bringing Mary to the temple to be presented, which was somewhat odd because it was always the first-born male that was offered in the temple. And there is a famous uh, 16th century painting by Titian. Titian was one of the greatest uh, painters uh, of that period. And it shows uh, Mary as a little child uh, with uh, with her mother Anne and, and Joachim at the at the sort of at the foot of the steps of the temple these massive steps that go up and at the top of the steps there's the high priest who's dressed in his in his uh, you know in his you know ornaments and and wearing what almost looks like a kind of uh, you know like a kind of a mitre as I suppose uh, 
and uh, she's about to, to be presented to the temple, but she has still to go up this this massive staircase, and at the top you can see these Solomonic columns and stuff. And uh, I remember uh, this this painting became well had a certain I suppose it had a certain importance at the period. Titian always was very influential, but uh, the uh, the professor who who was explaining this painting in the course this I took this like ages ago, but. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, something like that in, in the course. And as he's explaining it, he's saying, well, this is the child Mary. She's about to be presented to the temple. She's about to be brought up here, as you can see, these massive steps. And of course, uh, Titian, with his you know, infinite subtlety in his ability to make allusion to the future, as you can see, there's an obvious allusion here to the future of the crucifixion. And we're all staring at this painting and saying, what? What? It's just a little girl being, you know, what do you mean? And she says, as you look carefully at the clouds behind, and certainly there's these billowing clouds behind. This is when, you know, nature painting started and landscapes started. And sure enough, there are billowing clouds. And, and you look carefully at the clouds, the formation of the clouds, they do look like a massive cross being lifted, raised up, right? As though there's a parallel between the steps and the cross, you know? It took a little bit of uh, convincing, but uh, I suppose uh, that's indeed, you know, these ominous crowds, clouds rather, suggest uh, the cross that Our Lady was going to stand at the foot of, you know, with uh, her son. Well, her, her relics ended up in Constantinople in the 8th century, and then the different parts of her body ended up in France, in Mainz, in other places in Germany, and as you probably know, they also arrived in Canada, as I understand, in 1670, a piece of her finger was brought by Bishop François de Laval, now Saint François de Laval, and, uh, but the most important relic was a gift from Pope Leo XIII, who gave a part of her forearm in 1892, and was brought up, brought here by a bishop, a Canadian bishop. Uh, it was a, it was housed in a in a chapel in Saint Paul outside the walls. And then again in 1960, Pope John the Twenty Third gave another part of her forearm, um, and uh, and so that's why there's so much devotion to her. There was already devotion to Saint Anne from very early on because of that, the relic that Saint Francois de Laval brought. And indeed, there are ex-votos um, in Canadian or Quebecois art. Uh, ex-votos are, are paintings that are done in Thanksgiving for some miracle. And there are quite a few I remember seeing of scenes of uh, uh, like a ship uh, in, in the midst of a storm and the sailors crying out to St. Anne, and there she is in the clouds protecting them. And so there were a number of stories of people who were literally on the verge of shipwreck and dying but they invoked St. Anne, and thanks to that invocation and her intercession, protected them over the rough seas as they came over on the oceans or on their fishing trips here in the 17th and 18th century here in Quebec, and, and later too. So she had this, she had this protective role for um, many of the people here in Quebec, and, and her relics simply uh, underlined her role as they eventually built this, this massive shrine there, Saint-Anne de Beaupré. 
Now she was, as we know, as we know, the, the grandmother of Jesus, and therefore, in some mysterious way, well, she is somehow related to us, because we are the brothers of Jesus, and in, in some way, we have to understand her as part of the same family, really, you know, the same family. And, you know, when you go to a hospital they, and they ask you, are you family? Are you family? You can only come in here. My friend went the other day with his family, his children, and, uh, to visit my mother. And they said, no, you, sorry, you can't come. So you're not family. You know? so, and so he, he, his wife managed to go in because his wife knows my mother. So she managed to go in all hazmatted and everything. But, uh, but, um, but, you know, we are family. We are family. And, and of course, our Lord himself is a model for us, naturally, regarding how to, how to live the essential aspects of our faith. In our Lord himself, Jesus Christ. Faith uh, as a virtue, how to live faith itself, confidence in God, trust in God, not just, not just faith as a contents, like this is my faith, this is what I believe, but faith as a confidence, as a trust in God, as the, as the faith as that which makes me understand that he is guiding my life. He, our Lord is the model to live, therefore, the most thoroughly our divine filiation. That the way we live our divine filiation, because divine filiation is, is the most, let's say, exceptional expression of, of our faith. Of, our, of the virtue of faith that we have. And we know that the, the people of Israel considered God as Father because they, as a people, had been chosen from among, among all the peoples of the earth. Right? Among all the tons of people, the Jebusites, the, the, uh, you know, the Hittites, the... Uh, the Babylonians and uh, the Canaanites. I mean, there were many people that God could have chosen, but he chose the people of Israel. They, they were liberated, they were saved, and bit by bit uh, sent to the promised land, which they eventually uh, took over and inherited, even though because of their sins, often they were deprived of it. Moses himself was deprived of entering into the promised land. But of all the people of the earth, with their rituals, all their people, all these people with their kings and, and their customs, they understood God, Yahweh, has chosen us, has separated us. He's like, okay, there's all these massive hordes of people and he's taken us, he's separated us. Kind of as his own. We're special, we're set apart. And that's, after all, why... The people of Israel didn't eat pork. They didn't eat pork because well, the Egyptians, they loved pork. You know, they just loved, but it was like their main dish they loved. So, okay, we're not like the Egyptians. We're set apart. And, and many of the things that the people around them uh, did, and had, the, the Israelites said, we're not like that. And now they may also have thought that all other people also had a God, and even God as Father. But, well, it's really only to the people of Israel that God manifests himself as, as Father to his people. 
He told them that he was their father, not like the gods of Israel, uh, excuse me, like the gods of Egypt or the other gods. They, the, you know, the, the Egyptians had, they worshipped all these animals because there were these gods, like the raven had a certain, you know, he was the model of a god of the Egyptians and indeed the ram, you know, the reason they, they so worshipped uh, uh, the, the lambs is, is because there was a ram that was a god among the Egyptians. And, and indeed in, in Revelation, in the, in, in the Pentateuch, it uses terms that suggest that Israel is like a son. It's like a son to his father. And it was God who commanded Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my son. This was very unique to hear this. And the prophet Hosea places in the mouth of God these words, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We, we, we apply that to our Lord uh, during, during the when we commemorate the, the flight uh, into Egypt or the flight out of Egypt, and then, you know, I called my son. Or Jeremiah, who says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So we're, we're really part of that family. And it all starts with, of course, the people of Israel that slowly but surely began to understand the language of fatherhood, the language of sonship. And we don't always capture how, how original this was, if, if that's the word original, or how unique this was. This came to be their deepest identity. And though it was, of course, heartwarming, uh, it did not stop them from sinning. They, they kept sinning and, and, and really being quite unfaithful to God as father. And uh, the patriarchs and the prophets reprehended, uh, reprehended Israel for their unfaithfulness to the divine fatherhood. Moses said in Deuteronomy, do you thus requite or repay the Lord? He says, you foolish and senseless people, is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Is not he your father? And Jeremiah, and I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as faithless as a faithless wife leaves her husband, so you so have you been faithless to me, O house of Israel. You are you are foolish and senseless, he says. And he, we could say that about ourselves. We are foolish and senseless when we put aside the full import of divine affiliation in our life. We're foolish. We, we lose we lose stability. We, we're faithless. When our divine affiliation is just words, it's just words, it's just ideas. When it's not really embedded in our psyche, in our heart, in the way we pray, we just are able to say easily, divine filiation, yeah, divine filiation. You know. 
but it's got to be embedded deeply. It's got to be embedded in the way we got up this morning to face the day. Some days we may be very tired, we may be in some pain, we may have had little sleep, we may have lots of things to do, lots of responsibilities, we may be anxious about something, but then we face the day with this deep understanding of our divine filiation, which is kind of like part of our DNA. And it can be, if it's part of our DNA, well, it can be picked up in anything we touch or handle. You know, at the site of a crime, they will find the guy's DNA, the guy who touched the, that gun or who touched the, the side of the handle or the, or the steering wheel. Or, and that's definitive proof. If you find, if you find your DNA at the site of the crime, you're done. You're toast. I mean, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine DNA as a string of numbers and unique numbers that are totally unique to you. That's, you know, whatever. They show this squirrely thing sometimes when they show a, a picture of it. And, okay, so that's your DNA. But, but in the... In the New Testament, it's not a string of numbers. Right? The word for father, the word for father is practically synonymous with, with God, the creator. He was at the origin of everything. He's our father. And the people of God and the Christians, of course, show a progressive understanding of this sense of divine filiation, certainly in the primitive uh, community the Christian community, like the understanding of divine filiation is a progressive thing that bit by bit comes to be understood. It's not something that is understood immediately. And probably there's something of that in us too, that, that throughout our life, as we grow in our life, in our vocation, this understanding of divine filiation, we heard about it, no doubt, years ago. We've known about it, but it's still something that has to deepen. That both in it, it's our understanding, but also in our in our experience. And we can ask somebody like, I don't know to what extent you have a devotion to Saint Anne, you know, but the the connecting factor is the fact that she's part of our family. She's like our, well, she's like our great grandmother, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Now. The Aramaic word we heard really from our father, from his own experience there in the tramway, Abba, Abba. That was it's a popular word in Judaism. But the use of the word by Jesus, the work, the use that he makes of it is unprecedented in the Old Testament writings because the Hebrews did not address God with this word. They did not say God is Abba. They did not say that. That's not, that was not their tradition. They, they understood themselves to be sons. Well, from all those passages, you know, God says, you are my son, you are my specially chosen one. 
but they themselves did not use Abba. But Jesus used it habitually. Meaning, it, sh it showed, the fact that he used that, showed his particular communion with God the Father when he would go out to pray. And he distinguishes between my father and your father. He himself never says, our father. He wants us to be really conscious of our condition as sons of God. And that's what we ask now as we do our prayer. Okay, how, how conscious am I of this deep reality? Like, since this, these days of... Uh, and your course have begun. How, you know, how often do you have recourse to that? The way you prayed, the way you did your afternoon prayer. Maybe something came up that was, that was a bit difficult. To... How conscious am I? Maybe I, I still have to go up that mountain. Maybe we've only gone up so far and we haven't fully gone up that mountain with, with Jesus and Peter and John and James up the mountain. I recently read a book by American author David Brooks. It's a relatively recent book, about a year old or so. It's called The Second Mountain. The Second Mountain. He's the guy who wrote uh, the book on, uh, I forget what it's called now, the On Character. And it's a very basically focused in on the virtues and very, very good book. And now this is a new book. It's quite different in tone because in his life, he went through some rough times, some very difficult times, including a period of depression and, and divorce. It was very painful for him. And he's very candid in the way he talks about that. And he describes life, the life of people, as a stage of, of going up a mountain. Maybe like, I, I don't know, maybe like the ascent of Mount Carmel they hear, they talk about. But, but then you have to go up a second mountain. Suddenly, it's almost like a sudden thing. He said, I, I often find that their life has what I think of as a two, two mountains shape, two mountains shape. They get out of school, they began their career, or started a family, and identified the mountain that they thought they were meant to climb. The first mountain. The mountain that they thought they were meant to climb. So I'm going to be a cop, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, what have you. On the first mountain, we all have to perform certain life tasks, establish an identity, separate from our parents, cultivate our talents, build a secure ego, and try to make a mark in the world. People climbing that first mountain spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. <laughs> reputation management. Who am I? Like, What do people think that I am? He says, they're always keeping score. How do I measure up? Where do I rank? As the psychologist James Hollis puts it, 
at the stage at that stage we oft, we have a tendency to think i am what the world says i am the goal on that first mountain the goals are the normal goals that our culture endorses to be a success to be well thought of to get invited to the right social circles and to experience personal happiness it's all the normal stuff nice home nice family nice vacations good food good friends and so on then something happens some people get into the get to the get to the top of that first mountain tasting success and find it unsatisfying they find it unsatisfied is that all there is they wonder and they sense there must be a, a deeper journey that they can take. Other people get knocked off that mountain by some failure. Something happens to their career, their family, or their reputation. Suddenly life doesn't look like a steady ascent up the mountain of success. It has a different, more disappointing shape. He says it's never too early or too late to get knocked off that mountain. And he, well, he goes into a good description about how to go up that second mountain. Some people shrivel in front of suffering and, and they get afraid and, and resentful and uh, they shrink away in fear. And they can nurse these kind of eternal grievances after that. They don't get the respect they reserve. Uh, they, they, you know, it's like, a, like an endless tantrum of about some wrong that has been done to them long ago. But for others, this valley, this being knocked off uh, the mountain, is, is what will make them. And the season, especially of suffering, interrupts that, that superficial flow of everyday life and it has to be, for us, really... Uh, an occasion to grasp more of those deeper ideals. And, and if during an annual course like this, God can give us a key to open that door, we will sense more deeply our sense of, uh, and experience more deeply our divine filiation so that we can move up that mountain. And this is what I want, Lord, uh, I ask you now to really be a man with a deep sense of divine filiation. Maybe you haven't really gotten to that valley, valley yet. Maybe I haven't gotten there, Lord. I think that our Father was in that valley on the tramway in 1932. It, was, he wasn't, it wasn't a happy moment at first. It was a difficult time, the autumn of 1932. I suppose one could uh, go into all the details of what was affecting him exactly, but he describes that moment as one of the greatest uh, graces that he ever received, as the tramway was growing in a curve and no doubt the metal on metal was squeaking and, and making a, a very annoying sound with little oil to 
ease the turn, he suddenly received this tremendous grace to go up the second mountain. That was the tremendous grace of being able to say, Abba, Abba, Father. The same words that Jesus would use to speak to his father. And to never look back. Even his very first ideal, the ideal he had when he saw Opus Dei in 1928, was imbued with the first mountain idealism. This is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. You know, like it was kind of like exciting. And it was, it was like he didn't, he saw the, you know, I think it was, I forget who said that, but so he saw the, the building, he saw the facade. But not at that moment yet, in 28, he didn't see the foundations that would keep that marvelous building uh, standing. Now, in 1932, what he understood was the real conviction, what really matters is to be a son, and God is my father, and I must help others to discover this. This is what we ask now, to discover what part of the mountain we're on, if we're in the valley, and St. Maria, and in particular, St. Anne, who no doubt never knew much about really what her role was going to be, to intercede for us, so that we can also be sons in the sun, and therefore part of the family of God. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me. In this meditation, I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.